After you've traveled to the major must-see cities around the world, maybe you have the same feeling as Pico Iyer. I think the real source of comedy and wonder here is this blundering stranger going the wrong way down a road that's meant to be blocked. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're exploring what some of the world's loneliest places have to say to sophisticated first-world travelers. Like the picture postcard scene Lisa Napoli found in Bhutan. Unspoiled landscapes, Asian-infused Swiss chalets with people wearing the national dress, which is very colorful, even if they're farming. It's like being dropped into another world. And photographer Phil Borges explains that a picture is worth a lot more than a thousand words when you venture into the rural regions of Tibet. You hand somebody a picture of the Dalai Lama, they immediately grab it and put it up to their forehead and just hold it there. The pressures in the Himalayas from a changing world and the quest for getting away from it all. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Rapid changes to some long, isolated cultures in the Himalayas have something to say to the rest of the world about how we live and how we shape our future. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up in a bit, we'll hear how the once-closed kingdom of Bhutan is plugging into modern society with the help of a new radio station aimed at its young people. A portrait photographer describes the rapid changes he's witnessed in Tibet in the past 15 years and how it's threatening the lives of its indigenous cultures. And writer Pico Iyer explains his quest for the comfort of lonely places from Iceland to Australia and how stepping outside of your own culture can actually help teach you what home is really all about. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves in a country that few outsiders ever get to visit. Tucked away in the remote Himalayas, some 700,000 people call Bhutan home. It's still a very traditional society and only converted from a kingdom to a constitutional monarchy in 2008. Bhutan is also known for inventing the concept of gross national happiness. That's a way for them to measure progress and what matters most to its people. Broadcaster Lisa Napoli got a rare chance to actually live in Bhutan when she was invited there to help them start their first private radio station just a few years ago. She's written about her experience in her book Radio Shangri-La, what I discovered on my accidental journey to the happiest kingdom on earth. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So describe Bhutan to us, because we have this um, very simplistic sort of fairy tale Himalayan utopia in mind. But what is Bhutan like? Well, that's not far from the truth. I mean, flying in is an extraordinary thing because you're flying in and you don't see much of anything. And then you start driving and you don't see much of anything. And you're on roads that at best are perilous and in some places extremely primitive. So it's uh, unspoiled landscapes, Asian-infused Swiss chalets Mm. with people wearing the national dress, which is very colorful, even if they're farming. It's quite an extraordinary thing. It's like being dropped into another world. Rather than measure the prosperity of their society in conventional money terms, they measure it in gross national happiness, GNH, gross national happiness. How did that happen, and and exactly uh, what is that? It's actually a great story. When the fourth king of Bhutan was crowned, uh, Asia was developing around him rapidly. It was in the 70s. And a newspaper interviewer out of India, a British fellow, asked him what he saw as the important uh, development for the country. And he said, well, I'm going to measure my country's well-being in gross national happiness, not in GDP. And what he meant is not that he didn't want the country to make any money at that point. And even still today, most of the people make their living off of the land, subsistence farming. But what he meant was that he didn't want to become like the Asian countries around him that were developing so quickly that it was at the expense of the environment, that people were becoming stressed out, that they were moving from rural places to the city in search of a better life and not finding it. He didn't want factories belching smoke out and ruining the environment. He wanted to preserve a good way of life for his people. What's happened is over the years, of course, people like us hear about the concept of GNH, and we think it's just extremely charming and captivating, uh, and it's taken on a life of its own way further than he intended it to. Now, there's a reality that Bhutan is modernizing, and it's uh, going from an absolute uh, monarchy to a constitutional monarchy, and they hired you to come in and help introduce uh, modern media to the country. Now, I understand they they didn't even have TVs until 1999, and you were hired in to come and, and help them start up a radio station. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, no, and I have to correct you that I wasn't hired. I was brought in as a volunteer, and that's okay. a big difference because you're not allowed to work in the media and be paid in Bhutan unless you are a national uh, for long and complicated reasons. So I went there as a volunteer. I went at my own expense. They put me up in an apartment, and what they wanted to do was start the first youth-oriented radio station. Actually, it was the first quasi-private radio station in Bhutan. This is in 2007, and it turns out that that was right as the king, the fourth king I mentioned before, was abdicating the throne and announcing that he wanted the country to transition to democratic rule. What happened was that his young son, who is currently the youngest monarch in the world, took over and they transitioned to democratic rule, but the idea was that media were essential to helping a democracy implement and flourish, sort of like it was supposed to be here in the U.S., <laughs> uh, many countries around the world. And it's been a remarkable time in Bhutan since the 70s, since any sort of development. There were no roads, Rick, in Bhutan in the 70s. There was no hard currency. There was very little electricity. Uh, there were very few schools. And all of this has happened. No tourists were allowed in until the 70s. So all of this has rapidly changed. And as you mentioned, TV didn't come in until 1999. And of course, that's a radical moment, a radical mm -hmm. shift and change in the place. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lisa Napoli, and uh, Lisa's written up her experience helping to bring modern radio to the mountain kingdom of Bhutan. Her book is called Radio Shangri-La, What I Discovered on My Accidental Journey to the Happiest Kingdom on Earth. Lisa, the king apparently knew that democracy was going to uh, bring in the modern world. He had to open it up. He's got a younger generation. Apparently, they had a radio station that was there for public service announcements from the king and, and to play music during holidays or something like that. But you're bringing in a hip radio station to a pretty unhip uh, populace, I would think. What was that like? What did the kids want? What was your programming like? What were your challenges? Well, of course, I had this high-minded ideal that this radio station was going to help advance society into the democratic age. And in fact, all the people, the young people at the station, wanted to play pop music, pop music that's familiar to us. You know, people did walk in and they wanted to do shows about Buddhism, which, of course, is the state religion in Bhutan, or about cultural heritage. But mostly what they wanted was pop music, uh, pop music that often would make the elders blush because mm -hmm. it was quite racy. What's interesting is that, you know, you give people a radio station, they want to have fun. And one of the first things they did was have a contest sort of mimicking American Idol, which was on the television station there at the time. Now, of course, there are many ripoffs of American Idol on mm -hmm. Bhutan TV, Bhutan radio. But that was the first time. And it was a really complicated thing for me. I felt so fortunate to be there. And yet at the same time, I felt very guilty that we were sort of inculcating this wonderful place with all of these outside forces when, in fact, really, people are people wherever you go, and they're going to want the same things, which is love and to connect and have fun, dance. And speaking of that, you wrote uh, a very interesting chapter in your book about the Valentine's Day contest. Can you describe <laughs> that a little bit? They called it the Symphony of Love, S-O-L for short. And that was their interpretation of American Idol. And it was really wonderful because it showed me, it renewed my, my faith as a lifelong media person in the power of media in a positive way because Everybody in Timpu, the capital city of Bhutan, was listening to this contest every night, sort of like what you hear, you know, your grandparents or your parents, depending on your age, when they sat around watching television in the early days. This new king must be quite a, a hip character compared to his predecessors, and he wants to let an American come in and help shape modern media for their younger generation. Uh, having said that, was he looking over your shoulder or were his people there? And if you played something racy in the... And the, the music hour, did they say, you know, we don't really like those lyrics coming hmm. into our, the minds of our young people? What's interesting and hard for us to understand is that there was 
is and was then especially an inherent respect for the monarchy. And everybody feels as if they are a steward of the monarch. And, you know, even though there were transgressions, kids will be kids, they'll play Fergie, racy music, uh, you know, maybe they'll flirt on air with the callers. But the, the two elders who ran the station on behalf of the, the king's secretariat and uh, their advisory board were all right on it and uh, very respectful, very mindful of where stories were placed that had the king in it. I don't know that the king was hmm. as concerned with it as the people were in terms of keeping propriety's sake. And there's something wonderful about that, too, especially since it didn't feel dictatorial in the way you might hear about in other countries. It just felt more reverent. And it's so rare that you see people reverent of authority. You described how part of the funding actually came from the sale of the king's BMW. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. When he was crown prince, the now king had been given a BMW as a gift Uh, by a foreign government, and he sold it, as the legend goes, in order to fund this radio station. He didn't need a car. He had a royal vehicle. I love that story. But, you know, it's important to point out that Bhutan isn't perfect. It was charming. It was an amazing moment in time. It still is an amazing place, as many places are in this country. But it is not without flaws. It isn't perfect. You can see the flaws readily apparent in this magical kingdom, even though there is a lot of magic there. Bhutan, what is their their annual average income is $1,500 a year or something like that. Mm, And there's uh, well under a million people in the kingdom. And just uh, in the last decade, it's been opening up, or the last generation, and opening up to the rest of the world. I would imagine you have a lot of friends in Bhutan uh, thankful for how you've helped them move into the modern age of media, and only time will tell if you've helped or hurt that fragile little society <laughs> as it as it tries to adjust to a, a sort of a, a brutal, big, globalized planet. Well, uh, truth be told, Rick, a lot of people in Bhutan don't like my book. They don't like the fact that somebody's depicting mm. uh, this transition and that they, they feel like I did it unfairly. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm very fair. But I, I had a lot of friends in Bhutan. I hope I still do. I love the place <laughs> and it's given me a lot. Well, it's clear that you love the people and the culture of Bhutan. Lisa Napoli, Radio Shangri-La. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Rick. how the outside world's being invited into Bhutan. Next, we get an update on the pressures that threaten to do in the indigenous cultures in Bhutan's big northern neighbor, Tibet. Photographer Phil Borges tells us what he discovered with his camera on a photo project in rural Tibet, and how rapid development and climate changes at the top of the world are like the tip of some ominous iceberg for the rest of the planet. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Cultures are not museum pieces. 
even though a photograph captures a moment in time, change is the constant factor in every culture, even high in the Himalayas. Depending on how you view it, Tibet is either a nation that's been subsumed by China in recent years, or it's a large Himalayan region of China that's being brought into the mainstream of modernized Chinese society. And while many ethnic Han Chinese have taken up residence in the cities of Tibet, in the rural regions you'll still find primarily indigenous and nomadic Tibetans. But serious pressures of development and climate change are making life more difficult than it already is for the people of rural Tibet. Phil Borges describes himself as a cultural documentary photographer. His latest photography book is a stunning work from his travels to Tibet. It's called Tibet, Culture on the Edge. Examples of his portraits from Tibet and of other indigenous communities are on his website, philborges.com. And that's spelled B-O-R-G-E-S. Phil Borges, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. Great to be here. Thumbing through your book, I feel like I've been to Tibet. It must be so exciting for somebody who's passionate about a region to be able to share that with photography. You put together this coffee table book, Tibet, Culture on the Edge. What was your goal? You know, when I first went, by the way, this is my second time to Tibet. Uh, the first period I went over a period of three or four times was in the early 90s. And I did a very political book on Tibet, took very much the side of the Dalai Lama. And I didn't go back after that until 2009. And I went back with the intention to do a book on maternal health. I was documenting a program of a friend of mine who had trained some 3,000 midwives in Tibet. And I got there just in time to see her program discontinued. And it was discontinued because of the problems that happened right before the Beijing Olympics. And her organization was kicked out of Tibet. So I was there with nothing to do. And I got a guide and hired a couple of yaks and took off into the backland and started interviewing the nomads, the farmers, the monks, the nuns, all the traditional Tibetans. So the mission of yours sort of presented itself accidentally, and you were there, and you're a professional photographer, and you had this vast, powerful land to share. What did you want to share in your book? It's called Culture on the Edge. I mean, on the edge, does that mean on the edge of disappearing? Well, it's on the edge of big change, and big change was happening. And when I started um, taking these pictures, I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to say, but as I got into it, it became revealed. Number one, just entering Tibet after not being there for 17 years, it was amazing how much development had been done. Lhasa was completely unrecognizable to me. The two-lane road I remember going into Tibet was now a six-lane highway packed with cars. So when you say change, you're really seeing the physical results of China's agenda to incorporate it into China and at the same time dilute the Tibetan culture to the point where it doesn't stand against the Chinese initiative. Is that, Do I have that right? Well, Lhasa now is a Chinese town. I mean, the business is done in... Han Chinese, most of the businesses are. The schools are being taught in Mandarin. Uh, so it's essentially a Chinese town, yes. Because when you, you show a photograph in here of a vast, beautiful Tibetan landscape and then slashing across it is a black paved new road. Right. It has the anxiety or the, the horror of Edvar Munch's uh, The Scream. You know how that line <laughs> slashes through that. And I just thought that's the infrastructure of the Chinese agenda cutting right into right into Tibet. Yes. I mean, there was hardly any paved roads when I was there in the early 90s. And now you've got a paved road all the way out west to Mount Kailash. And that trip used to take several weeks. And you'd have to go with several land cruisers because one could break down. Now it's a one-day drive out there. By the way, the photographs are gripping, but they're even more gripping because of the careful work you did on the captions. You, you talked about people in the countryside who can't read or write, but they're addicted to their cell phones. Yes. And the interesting thing is they text. They come up with their own code. So I would meet people that were illiterate that were sitting there texting on their cell phones. And yes, China has covered the Tibetan plateau with solar-powered cell towers. And so I literally did not drop a cell call in wow. the, on the Tibetan plateau. So 
in two, the most two, remote area. 2,000 years ago, shepherds would communicate with their loved ones by a little eagle-born flute, and it happens right up to our generation. But in the case of a shepherd in Tibet, they'd just pick up their cell phone and communicate <laughs> with their loved ones back at the tent. That's right. Fascinating. And, and it's great. I mean, all this infrastructure helps out. I mean, to yeah, have so a cell a, phone... Yeah, so there's a good side to the infrastructure. You bet there is. You know, they've built hospitals, schools put in all this infrastructure in terms of communication. And the bad side of it is, you know, the schools they're putting in, they're teaching everything in Mandarin. So the language is in danger. And the Chinese have mandated that all kids go to school through grade nine. And that's wonderful. But they're all taught in Mandarin. The nomad kids go to boarding schools. Sometimes they only get home once a year. So you can imagine how fast that language is going to go away. My hunch is centralized governments, they don't want nomads. Nomads don't fit in with the the plan and the vision. So they require that they go to school as if that's compassionate. They provide the schooling. And the schooling raises a generation that just is disconnected from their heritage. And that's the end of that nomadic culture. Pretty much. And All over the world, that's happening. That's happening everywhere, and especially in Tibet, because they have the added excuse that now climate change is happening at such a rapid rate. The Tibetan plateau is heating up twice as fast as the rest of the world. So how is that an excuse? excuse for China to come in? Well, they're saying that all this herding is degrading the grasslands. Oh. So they're moving all the Tibetan nomads into these resettlement camps, hundreds of thousands. In the are... name of fighting climate change. Exactly. Because I understand it may be a sparsely populated plateau, but a lot of the water that feeds, what, a billion people comes from that area. Actually, two billion people. Two billion people rely on water from the Tibetan Plateau? Yeah, the Tibetan Plateau is known as the Third Pole because it holds the largest body of frozen water outside of the North and South Pole. And it's also known as the Water Tower of Asia because that body of water, that bank of water, feeds the Indus River that goes into Pakistan, the Ganges into India, the Mekong into Indochina, the Yellow River, the Mother River of China, the Yangtze, The Yellow River right now goes dry a couple of weeks out of the year. So these rivers feed two billion people. Now, you mentioned, Phil, in your book that climate change is something happening at double the the rate or something. I can't get my brain around that. How can climate change be worse in one area than in another area? It's because of the altitude. It's average altitude of about 14,000 feet at the Tibetan Plateau and its latitude, it's low, and so it, it picks up a lot more heat. And as these glaciers melt, the black rock that's underneath heats up faster, so it's going on at an accelerating rate. And not only are the glaciers going away, but the permafrost is melting. And when that melts, that releases methane, and that contributes to the whole greenhouse gas effect. So it's kind of a spiral. It's a spiral, exactly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Phil Borges, and Phil has written many inspiring travel photography books. His latest, Tibet, Culture on the Edge. If you want to learn more about Phil's work, uh, his website is philborges.com. Phil, you talked about the capital, Lhasa, being pretty much a Chinese city now. What about the countryside? I looked at a photograph in your book of the Trakar Monastery contained in a wall just stranded in a vast, vast landscape. I had the sense that that was another world cut off. Has China let these uh, Buddhist monasteries sort of do their own thing, or are there ways they're encroaching on that world as well? During the 60s, during the Cultural Revolution, most of the monasteries were destroyed under Mao. And then Deng Xiaoping came to power in the 80s, and he allowed the monasteries to start to be rebuilt. And now they're being rebuilt at... A great rate, actually. Um, So Buddhism is strong in spite of the modernization, globalization, and Chinification of Tibet. Well, yes. China has a very big interest in this. Right now, Tibet is the number one tourist destination of the Chinese. Almost 6 million Chinese go to Tibet every year as tourists. That soon will be around 10 million if it keeps growing at the same rate. And so these monasteries are the tourist attraction to a large extent. Does that tourism help fund the survival of the traditional culture, or does that tourism threaten the survival? Well, that's a good question. There's a couple of things happening. First of all, 
there's the Chinese Bureau of Religious Affairs, and they definitely have rules on how many monks can be in these monasteries. And the monks and the monastic community is always complaining about that pressure on them. The other thing that's interesting that's happening is Tibet is popular here in the United States. It's popular all over the world. A you mean lot the, the, of the cause of Tibet? The cause the of survival Tibet of and, the Tibetan culture, the Dalai Lama and so on. Yeah, and the Tibetan culture, what it stands for. So there's donations coming into these monasteries. And I was out in one very remote area where there was a huge $20 million monastery built. And it was for like 27 monks. And I, I said, who, who built this? And he said, it was a donation from Hong Kong. Somebody took a liking to this monastery. I thought, this is wonderful, you know, all this money going into the monastic community. Then I met a photojournalist that was a monk, and he said, you know, just imagine how this is going to break down the relationship between the monastic community and the lay community. Do you think a monk that is used to getting a bag of sampa, their food, for a blessing that they do on a house or a teaching wow. on meditation will still be motivated to do that when he just received a couple of million dollars <laughs> to to have this monastery? So there's an ironic downside to this. So he felt cash. it was that there's a very big danger that Tibet will become a modern-day Disneyland of you know, Tibetan the, Buddhism. The, I was reading about the uh, monks' self-immolation, burning mm -hmm. themselves up as a protest. Mm -hmm. tell, tell me, uh, what's the deal with that? Well, you know as much as I do. It's been going on just recently quite a bit, and it's really a cry for help. It's really a cry for attention. Pay attention to what's going Look on Look what's here. happening. Are the people demoralized, or are they upbeat because of their religion? Are the young people just saying, oh, I just want a cell phone and some video games? Well, a little bit of everything, but, you know, the thing that was surprising is how deep that devotion is still. I was told that actually that the pilgrimages out to the sacred sites have increased since the mm -hmm. riots right before the Olympics, mm -hmm. and that there's this backlash of wanting to hold on to that culture and build it stronger. So I, I saw some amazing things that I didn't see on my first trip in terms of devotion. You told a fascinating story about bringing in photographs of the Dalai Lama, which apparently are not allowed, and you'd give them to people. Yeah, you hand somebody a picture of the Dalai Lama, they immediately grab it and put it up to their forehead and just hold it there for several minutes sometimes, wow. and just in devotion. Yeah, You can't imagine the devotion a people have to their leader is unlike anything I've and seen And today, anywhere. would you think that that devotion would continue? Yes, it, it will The continue. Dalai Lama has not been back to Lhasa or Tibet proper since he was... 1959. Exiled. Since 59. Yeah. And still, you give somebody a photograph of him, immediately they put it to their forehead and pray. That's right. Wow. You know, the thing is, the young people are getting very impatient. They think his nonviolent mm. um, path to trying to resolve this crisis is not working. Mm -hmm. And that's what, you know, is the irony of this whole situation. The Chinese should be talking with the Dalai Lama instead of vilifying him because once he's gone, he's been mollifying the, the tendency to riot. And, in fact, when the riots happened right before the Olympics, he threatened to quit if, if they didn't stop. So he's always reining back violence. That's a and big struggle inside of people. You, you know, you want to be peaceful. You want to follow your spiritual uh, dictates or your leader. But also, you're young. You're impatient. You saw your parents spend their whole life getting nowhere. Now you want action. That's right. Wow. I, I was so touched by the photographs you took of vast mountains covered with prayer flags. Yeah. Tell me about those and what's it like to be there? Oh, it's like a Christo installation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just mountains covered with these prayer flags, people walking the Korah, the, the clockwise path around all their sacred objects, be it a little stupa or an entire mountain. So you go to a holy place, and whether it's uh, just a little well where you could walk 10 meters or whether it's an entire walled town and they had to walk three miles around, you see pilgrims making this uh, prayerful circle. In the mornings and in the afternoons. As a tourist, can I go there and witness this? Oh, yeah. What hoops do I need to go through? To get into Tibet, the Tibet Autonomous Region, you have to first get a Chinese visa. Mm -hmm. And don't say you're going to Tibet in that visa. You're just going to stay in China. And 
make arrangements with a Tibetan travel company in Lhasa. FIT is one of the best, and you can Google that and find out. I see. So you go to Lhasa as a a regular tourist? Yes. Well, I fly into Beijing, Uh then I get my travel permit to get on a plane to Lhasa. Okay. So you have to have that travel permit sent to your hotel in Beijing. Then you can board that plane. And once you get into Lhasa, then you have to get another permit to leave Lhasa and travel around Tibet. I see. But these agencies are good at putting that together, yeah. and they'll do and that for you. And it's part of the you. local economy, so they've got a, an interest in getting right. you out there. And as a photographer, you see some incredible things. Talk about sky burial. Well, I've never gone to a sky burial. I've been to sky burial sites. I have a picture of a site in, okay. in the book. Explain yeah. why there is this sky burial. First of all, Tibet is very high. It's rocky. You, you can't really bury people that it's easy. It's above the tree line. Yeah, and it's frozen ground. So uh, you can't take, cremate and you can't bury. Yeah, because there isn't much wood growing above right, that. Right. Uh, and I think it also has to do with their philosophy of impermanence and recycling. But they chop up the body and these huge vultures, I mean, they're about four or five feet tall, Um, come and carry the body away. And they literally, the monks do this, and they pound the bones with um, these hammers and mix it with their food, sampa, so the birds will eat everything and carry it away. So the body is completely devoured by the vultures and carried away, and that would be the standard Tibetan uh, Buddhist Sky sky burial. Yeah. As a photographer, trying to capture this, you've got to have an understanding of these fundamental Buddhist philosophies to know what you're shooting and what you're trying to get across to make it ring true. Well, you know, their philosophy and how embedded it is in their culture comes out in the people. I mean, you meet the Tibetan people. They're funny. They joke around. They're like the Dalai Lama. They, mm, they're yeah. very lighthearted. <laughs> they have a sense of peace about them, even in the midst of everything that's in going on In spite of all they've there. been through, they're still lighthearted and positive. Yeah. Self-grasping, what does that mean? Well, that's the enemy. That's what causes all the suffering in the world. That's what the Tibetans believe causes the suffering, that self-grasping, that I want to be right, I'm the one, I'm the most important. They constantly are working to overcome that human tendency. And they've been doing it for 2,500 years. They've got it down. (laughs) And it comes out in the way they are. I mean, that's what draws me back to Tibet. And I know with your photography, you're passionate about catching the the individual beauty of each subject that you photograph. It comes through in your book beautifully. Phil Borges, Tibet, Culture on the Edge. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Our next guest has written elegantly about his excursions in both Tibet and Bhutan, and he happens to be a good friend of the Dalai Lama. Pico Iyer joins us in just a moment to tell us what many of the remote outposts on this planet have taught him as he searches for places where a sense of isolation, even loneliness, can provide a healing alternative to an overstimulated world. How do you embrace the lonely places on this planet? We're at 877-333-7425 at Travel with Rick Steves. You might be surprised to learn that some high-end resorts actually charge a premium to provide lodging without phones or TVs. But a hunger for really getting away from it all doesn't always have to come with a high price tag. Joining us now on Travel with Rick Steves to describe some of the lonely places of the world he's enjoyed exploring for a little peace of mind is a writer who's admired for the keen observations he provides from his travels. Pico Iyer's been writing dispatches on his travels for Time magazine now for more than 30 years. And you'll find his articles in magazines like Condé Nast Traveler, and he's often in travel sections of major newspapers. His book titles include Video Night in Kathmandu and other reports from the not-so-far east, The Lady and the Monk, Four Seasons in Kyoto, The Global Soul, Jet Lag, Shopping Malls, and The Search for Home, Falling Off the Map, Some Lonely Places of the World, and The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama. Pico's most recent book is The Man Within My Head, in which he describes his admiration for the 20th century British author, Graham Greene. Pico, thanks for joining us. I am delighted to be here, Rick. 
you are sort of ahead of the curve. I mean, quite a while ago, you wrote a book about embracing lonely places in the world that was falling off the map. And now it's sort of trendy, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And I think that's because I always try to go against the curve. I mean, maybe a little bit like you. So this was at the time when the information revolution was taking over. And I thought, let me go and see the places that are in the midst of the disinformation or misinformation revolution. So I went to North Korea and Paraguay, Bhutan, Iceland, these places that are still very far away from the modern moment. Now, you say a place can be a lonely place, but not lonely in spirit. What did you mean by that? That it's physically very far away, but it's full of life and conviviality. And I know you know many of those places yourself, but I Iceland would be a perfect example because it's neither here nor there. It takes a long time to get to. But once you get to it, you never sleep because it's just buzzing with activity, literally round the clock. In your book, Falling Off the Map, you wrote about Iceland being uh, like a good setting for uh, Beauty and the Beast. What did you mean by uh, a good setting for Beauty and the Beast? Well, it's a little like walking into the Lord of the Rings or some medieval saga where you see these long golden-tressed princesses and you see these guys who look as if they're ready to smash you know, five WWF wrestlers so you can see where English literature came out of in some ways. And you wrote that settlements look like suburbs in search of a city, like the towns look like Lego communities. Yes, and I think it's that desolation that really moves me in Iceland because I can remember sitting on a rock, looking out over this great treeless wilderness, the wind whistling in my ears. You can see not a trace of the modern world, and you're almost taken to some unvisited place inside yourself, I find. You went there, you've been there a couple of times, and you commented on the dramatic changes. I mean, with your first visit, there was no beer, no TV on Thursdays. <laughs> <laughs> no dogs in the capital, that's right. <laughs> no dogs in the capital. And then, of course, the world sets in. And this is an interesting dynamic, of course. I mean, you cannot be completely isolated. It's a, it's a fascinating challenge. And I'm, I'm wrestling myself with this notion that there's, what, 100,000 Icelandic people. And it's a beautiful, pure thing. It's a pure ethnic anomaly. Mm. And then you've got the reality that there's immigrants coming in, there's going to be related problems to having a, uh, an underclass doing the hard labor or whatever. Have you seen dynamics like that in an idyllic, pure society? And what are your thoughts on that? Yes, I have. And of course, we are corrupting and spoiling it by our presence when you and I go there. I remember my very first day in Iceland. I was sitting in the main square and the largest newspaper in Iceland came to interview me because they were so shocked to see somebody with a dark skin. It was as if somebody had it was airlifted from Mars. I returned four years later and nobody gave me a second look. But I think that's the inevitable course of history. And I think most of those places hunger for contact with the outside world. I think of Bhutan, for example. When I went there, there was no television in the whole country with the result that they had more video stores per street than I've ever seen anywhere else in the world. And so... I think nobody in the world wants to be entirely cut off. It's, it's like when children grow up and a part of you wants to protect them from the world, but another part of you wants to make sure they can enjoy the benefits of This exposure. is interesting. Nobody wants to be entirely cut off from the world, at least at a point in their life. I mean, when they're young and open to the world. And things might change, I suppose. But it's an interesting dynamic when older people want to keep the traditions. Young people want to get out of the village and into the big city. Yes. And a measure of uh, the viability of a culture or the health of a culture might be, okay, the kids are going to go to the big city, but do they ever come back mm. to, the, to the traditional life? And in a lot of cases, they do come back. They do, yes. And I think we as visitors can easily practice a kind of imperialism because we want places to remain very remote and photogenic and almost out of touch with the modern world. But the people in the midst of it long for the cell phones and email that yeah. we find indispensable. As a tourist, I'm looking for the ladies at the well with the pottery jug on their, ha <laughs> on their head, you know, and can yes. they just stand in the sun correctly so I can get a good photograph. You wrote in uh, Back to Iceland, uh, sort of psychoanalyzing the passion they have for heavy metal mm. uh, music. And I love the way you described it. What is it, like a kid banging his fist against the narrow walls that the culture provided? That's right. The frustration you were just talking about, that what's so um, comforting to the old is very frustrating to the young. But I also, I think I noticed very early on in my travels when I was crisscrossing Asia, and Asia was being taken over in those days by McDonald's and Sylvester Stallone movies, and uh, I was thinking, oh, this is terrible. But that slowly I came to realize that these cultures have been around 2,000, 3,000 years they're more than able to take what they want from the rest of the world and not be transformed by them, just the way you or I could wear a piece of Japanese clothing tomorrow, but we'd still be as American as we ever are. And here we are in America, and we're busy driving Japanese cars to the Thai restaurant before going to see our Mexican friends, but we're still American. And I think that's even truer of 
an Iceland or a Bhutan or China. I've or, found the same thing in eastern Turkey when uh, TV sort of threatens the traditional culture with the young people enamored with Western civilization. And the old people say our roots are very, very deep. Yes. And, and they know that there's these waves that come in from outside, but yes. they're still yes. Turks. There's that beautiful resilience. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Pico Iyer, and Pico's latest book is The Man Within My Head. He's uh, well known for writing books that take us spiritually and, and psychically and emotionally to places where we don't obviously want to go. I mean, you've, you've had such an interesting life story. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're Indian, ethnically. Yes. Uh, and your family moved to, what, London and California? That's right. I was born and grew up in England, and then when I was seven, my family moved to California. So already I had three cultures within me. And I've always thought that's a great benefit for a traveler, really, that yeah. everywhere is equally home to me. So you moved from basically from Manhattan to the complete opposite of that, <laughs> rural, not, not Tokyo. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of action in Tokyo. <laughs> there but is. Tell us about your, your home right now. I live in uh, rural Nara, so about an hour outside the great ancient capital of Kyoto, and it's a two-room house, a two-room apartment. I don't have a car or a bicycle or a printer or a TV I can understand or the Internet. And it's partly because, as you were saying, immediately before this, I was living in Midtown Manhattan, a writer from Time magazine, four blocks away from Times Square. <laughs> wow. And I thought, well, I've got plenty of noise and stimulation and agitation in my life. What I really need is the opposite, which is a stillness and settledness so that was a, space. You weren't doing this on a crusade or a matter of principle. This was really out of your own selfishness. You wanted to be calm and, and hear yourself think. Yes, and I and I felt I wanted to explore that part of the world. I think, like you, I have a traveler's curiosity, and I thought, well, I've covered the urban world very well. Let's see what the rural world can teach me and how it can expand me. Rural Japan. Now, you've, you've lived there 20 years or so. That's and, right. And uh, you, you write that you still find Japan quite an alien place. Which is a way of saying very fascinating. Yeah. Uh, just they do everything the other way around. You go to the ballpark, and there are two and three counts there still. Um, when they open a book, they read from the back to the front as we see it, and from right to left as we see it also. And so that means it's constantly alive. Right? I love that about um, Japan. I remember... Hmm traveling alone in Japan. I love traveling alone in Japan. And it's just like, sometimes I just get so stymied, I sit there and I laugh at myself. I just <laughs> love it. I'm so, yeah. everything is upside down. Is. And I'm constantly just making stupid mistakes. And the beautiful people bail me out. They'll always rescue me when I'm, when I'm going down the wrong street. I often think as I'm walking down some street in India or Haiti, and it's so fascinating to me, I think the real source of comedy and wonder here is this blundering stranger going the wrong way down a road that's meant to be blocked. We should write a book together called How to Blunder. (laughs) (laughs) How to Get Lost. How to Get Lost. Get lost and and, uh, call it a good vacation. (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Pico Iyer about embracing the lonely places in our world to get out of our comfort zone, hear ourselves think, and so on. Pico's latest book is The Man Within My Head. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Allison's on the line in Spokane, Washington. Allison, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Pico. I love your writing, and I love traveling vicariously with you through your books. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Hey, I saved an article of yours from a few years back called 10 Things Every Traveler Should Do, and number nine was so outrageous that we're going to do it in Italy this spring with my teenager. You said, go to McDonald's. And I thought that was just so brilliant and nutty. I wonder (laughs) if you could elaborate on that. Uh, Yes. Well, remember, I have the excuse of having grown up in England, so I have no sense of taste. All my foodie (laughs) friends despair of me. But my idea in the McDonald's is that every culture draws from the same pool of often American images, but translates it into their own context and makes it something new. So go into a McDonald's in Delhi. Most of the dishes are vegetarian. There's the smell of strong spiced chai. Everything is as cacophonous and crowded and crazy as in the streets outside. And you never begin to think you're in Kansas anymore. You know you're in India. (laughs) Uh, Go to the McDonald's along uh, the Prado in La Paz, Bolivia. And it's such a status symbol to eat there that they have a security guard standing watch at the door. And they have a display case with a Seiko watch there. And it's more expensive than the very chic French cafe next door. Go to a McDonald's in my neighborhood in Japan and you will find um, all the young ladies are dressed in Dior and Gucci. Uh, they have moon-viewing burgers there on the menu in September in honor of the Harvest Moon, the great East Asian center of fascination for thousands of years. Bacon potato pies and everything about the way people are conducting themselves in my local McDonald's is as Japanese as it would have been a thousand years ago. There's nothing American about it really. And so I don't know what you're going to find in Italy, but it's my way of saying that when you're traveling, everything is interesting. 
And sometimes we imagine, well, American things aren't good. We haven't gone all the way around the world to see McDonald's, which is true. But if you happen to go into McDonald's, you'll realize that you're in a very, very foreign country. And it's just as revealing of that country as the Golden Temple in Kyoto might be. You know, you would never think of beer at McDonald's here, but in Germany, <laughs> you'll get your beer at McDonald's. And uh, that just makes it a little more German. Yes, Pico says, a mixture of the familiar and the strange as you travel. That's what makes it so much fun. I was even thinking of taking Pico just to walk around the block in my little town here and just to have the fun exercise of observing and uh, accepting things as legitimate, even if they don't meet my, my preconceptions. It's so interesting you say that because every time I come back from a great trip, I tell myself I'm now going to look at my own hometown through the eyes of a newcomer and see it with those awakened eyes of wonder I bring everywhere else. And it lasts about three days and then but I it's a good But it's a good challenge. The, what did he call the awakened eyes of wonder? Uh, a lot of times I try to think of our town through the eyes of a German visitor or a Japanese visitor or an Indian visitor and to think we have some wonders right here that sometimes you can be too callous to even observe. Um, a few years ago, I took my wife to see Tibet, which she'd never had a chance to see before. And I came back to my mother's house in Santa Barbara, California, and I was jet-lagged, a bit disappointed to be away from Tibet. And I just got in my car, and I drove 10 minutes through the hills of Santa Barbara, and I looked around, and I realized there was ocean on one side, unvisited valleys on the other. This was as beautiful as anything I'd seen in Tibet, if only I could bring the right eyes to it. So your travels helped you settle in better and appreciate where you are. Yes. And maybe, as you were saying, see Santa Barbara through the eyes of a Tibetan. Allison, thanks for your call. Thank you. I love the way you both think about travel. We're, awesome. Oh, thanks Thank for you. being part of the conversation. You bet. Bye. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Pico Iyer. Pico's latest book is The Man Within My Head. Phyllis is on the line from Demote, Indiana. Phyllis, thanks for your call. I have a question. Do you both still travel just for the enjoyment of it at all, or are you always thinking about what you're going to write when you travel? <laughs> just be, I was just chatting with Pico before the interview, and we both whipped out our little notepads that we keep on us all the time to catch the, the little, little, like little butterflies, ideas float by, and you kind of snare them, and you've got to put them in your little basket. Pico, how, do you, how would you answer that? Well, I, I know what you're saying, because that notebook can be like a camera, and when I watch a lot of people photographing a place, I think they're actually compromising the experience and not surrendering to it as much as they would if they didn't have a camera or a notebook. But that said, every now and then I will take myself on a vacation, so to speak, and say I'll put my notebook away. And I find I tend to sleepwalk through those places. And as soon as I tell myself I'm going to write about it, instantly I'm much more engaged. It becomes much more a conversation. Uh, I'm less passive. I'm asking questions of the place. I'm motivated to go out into the streets instead of just relaxing in the hotel. So I've found that writing is a way to wake myself up and to actually force me into a much deeper engagement with the place. So I'll sometimes tell myself I'm going to write about a place, even if I never write an article or anything formal out of it, as a way to make sure I make the most of that experience and really am attending to things uh, in the way I wouldn't otherwise. One of the joys of writing for me is it's like beachcombing after a storm. You're walking through a market or whatever, and you pick up all these cool little things, but you don't know if you can build anything with it. You just pick them all up. Mm. And I never have writer's block yet because I'm not worried about what I'm writing. I'm just picking up all the cool stuff that washed ashore. And then I go back to my room as a writer, and I sort through it. And it's just, for me, fun. And a lot of times, it's almost as if I picked up something that was designed to be together, and I didn't know it. And then you write it, and you go, yes. Or you write it and you go, no, it doesn't work. But, <laughs> but sometimes you've actually picked up something with all those pieces. And for me, that's, it's just a delight. It's, it's part of the, the joy of being on the road. And if you weren't writing, you wouldn't be picking those exactly, up, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. I wouldn't be out there beachcombing after that storm. So I think anybody can be freed to do that. But they need to be encouraged that you can be a poet, you can be a researcher, you can have that insight that you enjoy from a travel writer like Pico Iyer. And also, it doesn't have to be writing. You could take a sketch pad. Indeed, you could and should maybe take a camera or record or whatever, but that something that's going to tell you, I really want to make the most of this experience and, and be fully engaged in it. And I haven't set foot in a theater where there's just going to be a show unrolling before me. I've entered a dialogue where I'm going to have something to say to this place and listen to what it's saying to me. Phyllis, does that give you some thoughts on that? Yes, it does. It gives me a lot of inspiration. All so right. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for your call. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Pico Iyer about finding lonely places that really have a rich spirit. Pico, you were talking about Australia in your book, Falling Off the Map. And, uh, you know, it's obviously it's, a, it's a, like a big giant Alcatraz, isn't it? <laughs> now, now, how does its heritage as a place where they stowed prisoners a couple centuries ago impact the experience there today, the people? The, can you psychoanalyze it? Is there a, a residual effect? 
very irreverent, impressed by nothing, and loving freedom, maybe, more than anything, thanks to the convict experience. It took me a long time of going to Australia before I saw the, some of the real treasures there, as you know, I think, are in the interior. And so of late, I've been going to Alice Springs and Broome and places in the middle of nowhere and just sensing this land that is more ancient and potent than any other land I've seen on the planet. You, can, you step out of your motel room and you see this emptiness, and it's almost breathing and pulsing in front of you. You, you can hear the emptiness stretching for 2,500 miles. I mean, places like Arizona and Utah are splendid in that way too, but there's something about Australia that's more intense. I like that as well as the, the convict culture. <laughs> For Americans that are sort of almost afraid of leaving our culture, mm. of what value is it to go to these lonely places, and how does that help us after we settle back into our day-to-day life? I think travel makes us an optimist. And what I find is when you're living anywhere in the world, including the U.S., you're aware of everything that's going wrong, things you don't like. The, the other man's home is always greener. And as soon as you travel you see that most of the people in the world long to come to America and that we have, we're sitting on certain advantages having to do with mobility and space and kind of democracy and freedom that are real rarities in the rest of the world. And it's a wonderful thing to come back to America and see it through the eyes of a Cuban or a Burmese person or a Tibetan who are more than aware of some of the less great aspects of our nation but have a stronger sense than we often have of the beauties of the nation and the uniqueness. And it's often struck me as a traveler that I don't think there'll ever be a Chinese dream or a Japanese dream that's bewitching the world, however successful those countries may be. But there's something about America that speaks for possibility and opportunity around the world that's exciting and that we forget about when we're in the midst of it. And I think... Like you, I take very seriously this notion of a global neighborhood where the first generation really to live in one. And in any neighborhood, the sensible thing is to go and meet the neighbors. And so I think one reason I travel to especially often closed to impoverished countries is the people I meet there long to come to America, but they'll never have the time, the means or the freedom to visit us. So it's up to us to go and visit them and to initiate the dialogue and and to bring their dreams to their doorstep in that way. Pico Iyer, I'm so thankful you found your niche as a travel writer for for a lot of us. Thanks a lot and best wishes in your writing. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by yours truly, Tim Tatton, with Sarah McCormick and Isa Kaplan-Wilner. Thanks to our friends at Marketplace Productions in Los Angeles for studio help this week. You can join us as a caller during one of our guest interviews or ask Rick a travel question or tell him where you've been during an open phone session. Look for the link that says Sign Up for Radio News in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. That's how we can notify you of our next recording dates and topics. And we'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.